Welcome to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Welcome back to Logically Faithful. We're continuing part two of our interview with uh, Gregory Kokel from Stand to Reason, the author of The Story of Reality. Okay, yeah. then let, let's continue then. The, the process of conviction is important. Even now, my New York Times bestselling books talk about the power of speaking with conviction. And one mm-hmm. of the things that got the attention of the many people is Jesus spoke as one with authority even 2,000 years ago. Even right. today is still true. And many con men use that to their advantage today, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there are many people who are convinced that their position is just as true as yours. And you've heard this objection over and over again, Greg, but it keeps popping up. It keeps sticking its head out of the sand. There are people who are willing to die for their convictions from other points of view. Yeah. And they're just That's as convinced true. of their points of view. And one of the questions that keeps coming up in my classes is, Professor, Professor, who's to say what's true? And I like something that you said in one of your books. I think it was Tactics. It's, well, who's to say is the one with the best arguments? Yeah, That's, that's the right. one who's to say. But, yeah. but nevertheless, even then, you still have a world group, a, a milieu, and a sociological milieu of a group of people who have had information passed down to them through generations who are convinced that this is true. And one mm. of those uh, is, is Islam, for example. Take the other competing worldview and others. How do we navigate our waters through this as a um, uh, the vast the, the, the nuns are growing worldwide? Uh, right, right. Well, yeah. How do I navigate through this uh, murky waters of conviction? Because I hear conviction oh. in your voice. I hear passion. But <laughs> I hear it from the other side, too. Uh, right. And you seem convinced of your point of view and the arguments seem to be in your, your favor or, or, or seem to be in your favor. However, how do I, as a skeptic, walk this fine line? Well, it's, uh, I don't think it's that difficult. Um, <clears throat> first, a comment about the question, who's to say? I have a friend who's a university professor who does not allow that statement in his classroom. And the reason he doesn't allow it is it's an imposition of relativism. It's an aggressive imposition of relativism, mm. of skepticism, without any justification. And it's a, and it's a conversation stopper. Mm. Who's to say? Okay, that's it. Nobody's to say Go is on. the implication. Yeah. But see, when someone says that nobody's to say, well, that's a, that is a very bold claim, and it needs to be justified. So let's just go past that and go back to the, your, your main point about lots of people have very strong convictions. My response is ignore the strength of conviction because the strength of conviction means nothing regarding the truthfulness of that which the person is convinced by. It has absolutely no bearing. You can have 99.99% of the people in the world absolutely, utterly, and irrevocably convinced that the earth is flat and it doesn't make the earth into a pancake. (laughs) Conviction changes nothing about the nature of the world, okay? That's a subjectivist approach, a relativistic approach. What you have to look at, and here I'm going to repeat something you mentioned a moment ago, but we went too quickly past it, is something I say in another book that I've written. The person who has the best reasons is the one 
who gets to say. And I'm not saying that because on my authority, it's the person who gets the best reasons. This is the way thinking works. And to make the point more sharply, if somebody disagreed with me on this point, that it's not the person with the best reasons who gets to say, then, and they say, no, that's not really true. And I say, well, what do you think is true? And then they might give me something else, the person who has the strongest feelings. And then I'd say, well, what are your reasons for that? And then what they would do is begin to give me their reasons. So they would fulfill my point even in the process of, of, uh, of disagreeing with my point. Earlier when I was talking about some of those things, the details of my worldview and Jesus and the, and the like, notice there was energy in my voice. I did have conviction. But I wasn't just looking to persuade people because I felt really strongly about it. And I hope that is not the reason that people are compelled to take seriously what I have to say. I gave very particular reasons. I tried to correct some false ways about thinking about things. Oh, it's all about empirical stuff. Well, mm. no, you don't even, nobody believes that in actual practice. There are other ways to know. And then I focused in on a particular claim that you identified, Jesus claiming to be God, the great I am. And I said, how would you know that? Well, if this guy rose from the dead, <laughs> gee, that would be evidence, wouldn't it? And how do you know if he rose from the dead? Well, let's look at these three, four facts of history and then ask ourselves, what is the best explanation for those facts? Did the disciples steal the body? Did the Jews steal the body? Did the Romans steal the body? Nobody had an interest in stealing the body, okay? Hmm. Did Jesus swoon? Did he not die? Nobody has ever survived a Roman crucifixion. That's probably not the best answer. Or maybe they all had hallucinations. Group hallucinations are not possible. Just like you can't wake up in the middle of the night and say, hey, honey, I just had a wonderful dream. Why don't you go to sleep with me and we'll both share the same dream? <laughs> hallucinations are in individual minds. They're first person private. Point I'm making is here are all of these reasons why those alternate explanations are not going to be good answers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Notice what I'm doing. I'm giving a rationale for people to consider that is unrelated to my own sense of confidence about the view. Okay. So if we have Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or anyone else that is fully convinced of their view, so what? Good for them, uh, you know, I respect that, but that's not compelling to me as a thoughtful person. I wanna know why are you fully convinced? Emotional reasons? Have you been socialized by environment? That could be. By the way, somebody who is merely emotional or socialized by their environment to believe still could be believing a true thing for those other reasons. But that's not going to help me. I'm on the outside of that socialization. I need to know why, they, they t why the things they believe are actually true, if they can tell me. Most of those people who are fully convinced of their view cannot give any, most of them cannot give any um, reasonable characterization of why anyone should take those views seriously. And if that's the case, then yeah. I don't know why I should take them seriously. Right. I, I hear what you're saying there. I understand that. But from a sociological perspective, doing research on religious uh, groups and people groups uh, around the world, what we found is, and in, in even our sociology department here, is the vast majority of people who are of a particular worldview or spiritual um, groups or uh, things of that nature, when you ask them why, 
most of them will not give you a set of reasons with a conclusion right. or a logical syllogism. Most of them are there because of osmosis, because their community believes it, because their right. culture believes it. They're there because my family believes it. It's part of who I am. Yeah, right. Um, uh, they're not necessarily convinced of this through a right. logical syllogism or leading through the evidence. They're, they're convinced agree. for other reasons. I These agree. These other reasons are not necessarily the reasons that you put forward. But when challenged... We need to present these, yes. But the mass majority of people, these are, this doesn't play a factor in it. There's something right. else in play. That's right. That's right. So notice what you've done, though. We've just switched topics. We started out talking about the truth of the universe, and now we're talking about sociology and psychology. Which okay? is part of the truth so, of the universe, isn't it? No. Well, oh, oh, not in the sense that we're discussing it, right. Mm. That people have certain sociological and psychological influences that cause them to believe things is part of the truth of the universe. But we're, we're talking about worldviews and the big picture of the nature of the universe and how we know what's true about religion. And looking at somebody's psychology or sociology only tells us about cultural factors that help people to believe or psychological reasons people might want to believe, it doesn't tell you anything about the nature of the beliefs themselves, mm. whether they're true or false, and that's what we're after here. And this is why when Michael Shermer writes his book, he's an atheist, American atheist, he writes right. a book about um, the sociology of belief, he's, he misses the points entirely. Mm. Whether God exists or not is, depe is, is dependent on or whether Jesus is who we claim to be, are dependent on a different set of information. Looking at why Christians emotionally might believe that, or why Muslims might do what they believe, oh, that might be interesting in terms of sociology and psychology. But that doesn't get you to the question of whether their religious convictions are true or not. That's a different enterprise, okay. and sometimes this issue gets in the way of asking that more vital question. And thank you for bringing that up, because we do need to come back to that. Because uh, even, the with, the, even with the Freudian, the Freudian uh, problem of wish fulfillment, does raise some interesting sociological factors of human nature, but it doesn't address the question itself, is what I'm That's believing it. true. Um, but here's a, go back to something you said earlier regarding hallucinations, and this was mentioned in the case for Christ as well. Uh, Hallucinations do not happen to groups, they happen to individuals, granted. Right. But there are historical evidences and historical uh, situations where you do have groups of people who have seen um, phenomena that they claim is actually real, that it's actually there, such as Mary appearing to a group of people in Guatemala and or a bunch of people in India saying they see the gurus float above the heavens and split the moon. There's groups of people who would say they see this together. Um, there seems to be some kind of groupthink that values harmony over coherence and logical analysis, where they um, almost submit themselves to this mindset that says, because I'm see you're seeing it and you're all seeing it, I must also see it too. Yeah, and well, so you have some type of group hallucination type of factor happening here. How well, do you address it? Could that have happened with Jesus? It's not, a, it, it's not a group hallucination. No, there, one of two things is going on. Mm. Either you have a genuine third-person public manifestation that everyone can see. And uh, I believe, in a, in a certain sense, in a magical world. I mean, there are all kinds of things that, that can happen that are not empirically based. And so that there can be apparitions that lots of people see, I, I certainly think that's possible. That's within the, the realm of possibility from my perspective. Um, I also think there is a power of suggestion, okay? Powerful that is a, a whole power of suggestion, which is what you're getting at a certain with. But notice that when, when power of suggestion is working here, you've got a lot of people that are 
inclined to believe or leading toward that are caught up in the emotion of a moment and then some maybe modest thing is shared between them. Oh, I saw a glimpse of that thing. Or I think I saw the glimpse of that thing. In the case of the appearances of Jesus, I mean, let's just be fair. These are appearances that happened over 40 days, according to the record, over 40 days, which one of the participants said Jesus appeared with many convincing proofs. This was his language. Mm. This is not just, did you see a little wisp of Jesus there? (laughs) No, he shows up in the room. He Mm. says, touch my body, hand me some food. Let's have dinner. He shows up on the beach in Galilee. He cooks a meal for them. They carry on. They have conversations. They are persuaded such that they are willing to give their own lives for this. Saul of Tarsus, a man who is bent on destroying Christians, oh, but he's not part of that group. Mm. He's, he's all on his own, man. He's not part of the group that really wishes Jesus was alive. He thinks he's dead. And he also thinks that the, uh, the, the Christians are heretic Jewish sect, and he's trying to destroy them. He has a turnabout because of an engagement he has, a powerful experience with the risen Christ. So on the one hand, you could say maybe it would be this power of suggestion with a whole group that's built up to a frenzy like at a rock concert. But it turns out when you look at the individual circumstances, this is not the kind of circumstance they were facing. And in one case you have, you know, a dozen, you have doubters like Thomas that say, there's no way I'm going to believe. And then he is so powerfully compelled that he is shamed by his rejection of the testimony of the others. Mm. And so this doesn't comport with this characterization of, you know, groupthink and, you know, oh, yeah, I think I saw, yeah, that looks like Jesus in the clouds there, you know. Yeah, yeah, I see it too, me too, yeah, no, 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 I see what you mean. And I think you just uh, decapitated that objection, so I'll I'll move on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, in your book, uh, Tactics, which I have here, a great book, Um, I actually had an audio, which I'm waiting uh, to go through, I'm going to finish this one, this is wonderful, wonderful resource, I recommend that to my yeah. audience. Um, I also read a different book called Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness, right. which he seems to argue against the very thesis that you were propounding, which is there okay. are certain tactics and ways that are better, uh, that we can use to address people and make it and influence people around us, where Oz Guinness say no, um, there are no foolproof methods of persuasion, and those that come closest are coercive and dangerous because they override the will rather than convince the mind. However, even Guinness himself would admit that he still has some strategies in his own book. Yeah, right, <laughs> but right. But nevertheless, so I, how would you address uh, Guinness? Because you know, he's, sure. a, he's a mover and shaker in his own right. Well, I, I have a great respect for Oz Guinness. I've known him for many years. I think he's a great writer. And uh, broadly, I, uh, I, I, I agree with this point. And let me just go over it carefully, what you just cited. There are no foolproof methods of persuasion. That doesn't mean there aren't legitimate methods of persuasion, but there's no trick that you can use to persuade people. And if you find a trick that persuades people all the time, it's because it's overridden their will Mm. and kept them uh, from being convinced in their minds, okay? When you read Oz's books, Oz is brilliant. He, his books are thick with persuasion. He's trying to persuade you of views, but he's not trying to override your mind. He's trying to convince your mind. 
you look at Jesus of Nazareth, and frankly, I, it, uh, I think I want to encourage your listeners, more of them, especially skeptics, to read Jesus. And when I say read Jesus, I don't mean just page through and cherry pick little lines here. Mm. Start at the beginning of one account of his life and just read through and let Jesus speak for himself. What you will find you, is, a, is, a, is an unbelievably intelligent human being mm. with tremendous uh, perception shrewdness and persuasive ability uh, as one group of soldiers were sent to arrest him and they came back and they said you know we couldn't arrest no man speaks like this man speaks and so he, he there was a power in his words not just in his presence a power that people can experience reading now even though they don't hear Jesus doing the public speaking okay mm-hmm. and and so um, you notice that Jesus has very powerful, persuasive methods. One of them is to ask questions. And he's very good with that. Well, this is one of the things I teach in the tactics book, is to ask questions. And so question asking, I guess, can be manipulative, but it isn't necessarily manipulative. It's a technique to get information from people, to understand not only their point of view, but their reasons for their point of view, and to get them thinking properly so that you can help convince the mind. So I don't think, I have Fool's Talk sitting right over here, <laughs> right on my office on the floor. Okay. And um, So um, I, I don't think that um, Oz would object to the kinds of things that he finds in tactics. And I think that I could quickly find examples of those same persuasive measures in the book tactics that Oz himself is using in his own book. What we don't want to do is we don't want to look for the silver bullet, the thing that's going to kind of fix everything and Mm -hmm. persuade everybody. Uh, We want to approach people as individuals and and know how to respond to each person, as Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 4. And that is the tactical approach, knowing how to respond to each person. And to do it with wisdom. And that's what your work really helps yes. and brings forward to that. Well, yeah. by the way, that quote I just gave you is yes. from sec- is, uh, Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. And first he says, mm. uh, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity let your speech be with grace. Nice. Yeah. in this wall, so you know how to respond to each person. So he says, in summary, be smart, be nice, and be tactical. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good technique, it seems to me. It and seems to be right. This is going to find any fault with that. And I, and I try to keep my uh, keep that in my mind myself. And when people object to what I'm saying, what I'm doing, let it be for the logical reasons themselves, not for my manner, my mannerisms, or the way I have presented myself as an ambassador for him. And that, that is um, a convicting uh, b- b- proposition I have to work on. Uh, let, me, um, let me start landing this plane here. Uh, what, are, what do you think in your uh, 40 years of doing this wonderful work that you've been doing are some subliminal roadblocks or cognitive biases that we put up that uh, prevent us from um, coming closer to what we know of to be true? Uh, are there ways we can... Uh, uh, better address these that will not fumble us up and, and draw us further back. Yeah. I know one of the biggest objections out there is, um, you know, hypocrites or people who are um, uh, not presenting the faith properly. And when I ask my students, the vast majority of them, when I fill out a survey in philosophy of religion classes, I ask the majority of them who are skeptics or not believers, what are the main reasons? And overwhelmingly, Greg, almost every semester, the vast majority of them say it was somebody who followed the faith who did not live it. 
Yeah. One of my students said he um, he left uh, his his Christian upbringing, his father being a pastor, and he was embraced Islam. So why are you Muslim? He said, well, because Islam makes more sense, the Trinity and all this. I said, hold on a minute. There's something else. What is it? He said, why you say? I just I said I just sense it. There's something else. He said there is. My father was a pastor, and he was a womanizer. Uh huh. Multiple yeah. times on my mother, and mm-hmm. I it it tore me to pieces. And mm-hmm. it seems to be those are that's one factor that's keeping people from that. But that shouldn't have anything to do with the truth of the proposition. But nevertheless, yeah. can you can you address that and speak to this? Well, no, I I, I just your your comment just then. Nevertheless, well, let's slow down a little because it has nothing to do with the truth of the proposition. Is what you said. And then you said nevertheless. But that's key to this whole thing, Professor. Look at if. I understand the emotional reasons that people might reject all sorts of things, you know, um, but that when it comes to an issue of the truth of the world, wow, now we want to be careful that we are thoughtful about the emotional pushback as opposed to the reasons, okay? Because let me just think, somebody could have a bad experience with a doctor. Mm-hmm. Let's just say a child, I mean, perish the thought, but a, a young person goes to a doctor and the doctor uh, mistreats that young person in some way. This creates a terrible memory in the, chi- in the child, and now as an adult, this child doesn't want to go, hates doctors. Okay? Mm-hmm. Can we understand why they would hate doctors? Of course we can. Yeah. Can we sympathize? Can we feel bad about the bad experience they had? Absolutely. Can we deplore the conduct of the doctor as being unprofessional and immoral? Absolutely. However... <laughs> We still have medicine, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and if you're getting sick, if you don't go to a doctor, then chances are you're going to die, you know, depending on the nature of the sickness. And so, so I, this is where um, there's a difference between emotional reasons to reject a thing and, shall we say, rational reasons come in. Now, sometimes it doesn't matter. Man, I don't like asparagus. Man, my dad used to make me eat asparagus when I was a kid, and I hate that stuff now. All right, you never have to eat asparagus again. Who cares? All right. That doesn't matter. But when it comes to issues that really matter, like the doctor thing, or like ultimate issues, this is where I think we have to be careful to ask ourselves, what is actually going on here? You had a dad that was a womanizer? Okay, bad for him. All right. But what does that tell you about Jesus and Christianity? It tells you nothing about Jesus and Christianity. It tells you about your dad. Mm. Okay. But what's at issue is not your dad. What's at issue is Jesus of Nazareth. And so we need to think about that in spite of whatever bad feelings you have. Get the point there? Well said. Yes. Well said. You can't dismiss the entire enterprise of medicine and science because of some scientist doctor has has mistreated you that would be absurd in the same mm-hmm. way can we do the same thing about the entire coherence of a, a christian worldview because of a, of a pastor or a priest that would yeah. not be as wise either sure okay. sure and people have lots of bad experiences with things and I, yeah. I i understand that but you have to get back to the basic question what does this tell you about god or jesus or christianity or or islam or hinduism or whatever it applies across the board we have to deal with those things on on the merits and not uh and not based on uh, bad experiences we've had. We also have to think about what reasons we have. Sometimes the reasons we give are not the real reasons. At least in your case, your friend that you spoke with was able to get behind the issue to emotional concern that was really driving his decision. Mm. We also have to deal, I think, with confirmational bias, and that's very, very strong in everybody. Mm. We want to continue believing what we already believe, and so we're selective in how we look at the information. Mm. Those are all factors in this process. Right. 
Let's go to the final question. Um, I find in my journey that sometimes those who are dogmatic are on the side of truth, quote unquote, may be just as dangerous as those who embrace relativism. After all, yeah. we're not the Pharisees, absolutists, or authoritarian. Um, yeah. So you have this this spectrum here of the the dogmatic one who holds the truth and doesn't need to be taught or doesn't want to be taught because of course he has it, and then you have the other extreme who says nothing's true, everything's up for grabs. Let's just go smoke something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have this extremes here, and, and uh, is there a middle ground as we navigate this? Um, can you speak to that? Well, I wouldn't say there's a middle ground. I think this is where you need to be careful on how you assess things. And what this is an example of confirmational bias that I was mentioning a few moments ago. So let me ask a question. Uh, do you know what uh, Jonas Salk was? Jonas Salk, who made the Salk vaccine for polio. Mm -hmm. uh, you think no, you no think? I haven't researched Salk, though. Oh, no, well, it's not, I mean, it's yeah. polio, pretty much polio yeah. is a thing of the past okay. because of Jonas Salk, S-A-U-L-K. Okay. I got to be careful using historical references. You know, nowadays people don't remember these things. But okay, <laughs> I, I'm just using it as an illustration. Okay. You think, or Madame Curie, or um, um, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. You think the? Do you think Jonas Salk, Madame Curie, Martin Luther King, uh, Einstein? Uh, do you think they were absolutists in some sense? Do you think Mother Teresa, if she wasn't absolutely convinced? of her virtuous convictions would she have started the work she was doing there in Calcutta to help these poor people you put it that way yes they're all they're all one they way all another. are yes, what, what, yes. you know Martin Luther King look at he sacrificed his life for civil rights was he an absolutist yes he was you see here's the tendency and this is what I was referring to professor a moment ago when I talked about confirmational bias mm. the tendency of looking at people that they think they're right is to is to um, trot out onto the stage all these nasty people who thought they were right, right. and say, look at how dangerous it is to think uh -huh. they are right. But there are a whole bunch of wonderful people who did wonderful things who would never have done anything wonderful if they didn't think okay, they right. were right about it. And mm -hmm. so the problem, the, it's not a middle ground of thinking, well, maybe I'm right, but maybe I'm not, like you're kind of halfway between the two things. The question is whether you are right about the things you're, you think you're right about. Mm. It's being right about the right ideas. It is not somehow being in the middle. Um, I heard a, a, an actor once who was being interviewed. He's the guy who is in uh, the, the main actor in Hacksaw Ridge mm -hmm. and also another religious movie. And somebody asked, well, have you become more religious? And he says, I think, I think certainty is dangerous. <laughs> Well, this is the same point you're bringing up here, but wait a minute, Martin Luther King was certain. Right. That wasn't dangerous. It's what you're certain about. That's the concern. And don't and so we have, you're certain, yeah. you have that moral factor that comes into play, the morality that you have to throw into the, the, the mix, don't you? Well, uh, well you have to, it's, it's also what morality you think is certain. If you're a, right. if you're a suicide bomber, a Muslim suicide bomber, you think it is morally right to destroy all of these people. So it's not just that it's a moral conviction, it's got to be the correct moral conviction. That's the issue, is getting things right. That's the issue. It's not being certain about things. Everybody's certain about all kinds of things, and that's not dangerous. How do you balance certainty of the type that you mentioned with a sense of humility, which is one of the most important virtues in the... In the in well, the I... 
Right. I don't think they're I, I don't think they're connected. And what I mean by that is I don't think that certainty itself is something that causes arrogance. Okay. People who are arrogant can be arrogant about their certainty and about a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. People who are humble can still be humble in the midst of their certainty. But what we can't say is that if you're certain you're not humble. That's a mistake. That's a huge mistake. It's the way you carry those things. Here's the way I would put the concern, uh, Professor. I would say this. I would say the, the, what we want to do is we, will hold, we want to hold on to our convictions with the, with, the, with the sense of certitude that our justification allows. So look, at there are some things that I believe, and I have a lot of justification for it. I'm not going to let those things go particularly if they're things that really matter. That doesn't mean I got to do this with my nose in the air, mm-hmm. but I can be humble and still stick by my guns. Jesus was humble and he stuck by his guns, obviously, okay? Um, but if there are, there are other things where I might have some opinions about, but I don't have really good justification, I'm not going to die on that hill. Right. I'm not going to fight about that because I, 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 maybe I'm mistaken. I could be mis- actually, I could be mistaken on most things. So this is where I think the balance is, is that, it, is that we have a virtue of humility as we approach the whole process, but if those things that are important that we have strong justification for, and if we have strong just justification for it, we should be able to itemize those reasons why we're justified, then I think we can stick to our guns without being properly accused of, of arrogance and and and, uh, and lack of humility. Right, how we this approach it. Yes, it, yeah, it just, so it's, I think right. it's, a, it's a false step when people say, yeah. you are so confident of your belief, how arrogant to yeah. believe you're right. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's that's a, a, a yeah. They think they're right too. Let's <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, yeah, I just, I, uh, uh, just I, we we mentioned one of the the, the the tenets I hold to is to to object to judge, but not to be objectionable or to be judgmental. Although I can make proper judgments, I don't yes, have uh-huh. to myself become a jerk in the process. Yeah, I, I don't have to look down on it. That's not my right. Uh, I'm I'm just the creation of God. I could be I could be flawed as well. But yeah, that does not con- mean I should con- be convicted of right. my convictions. Condescension is the problem, not judgment. It's condescending judgment that Jesus objected to in Matthew 7. There are other places where he commands us to judge properly, but it's condescension that is the problem. Right, right. And I know um, Paul Johnson talked about the danger of intellectuals and people who are convinced, but he did look at specific people, but he didn't, like you're talking about. Look at the broad spectrum of those who change the world for the better who are also convinced of their position. Exactly right. We need to be fair to do that. All right, let's uh, go ahead and wrap this up, Greg. Thank you for your time. Any final words would you like to leave to for our audience? Um, some maybe resources or uh, um, words of wisdom as you uh, as you depart here as we drop, wrap this up? Well, a couple of quick resources, and that is um, for those philosophically minded about these, uh, I can think of no better place to go than reasonablefaith.org, uh, philosopher William Lane Craig's website. It's really first rate. Mm-hmm. Um, I also can commend our own website, Stand to Reasons website, and that is the acronym str.org. And uh, that's a place people might go 
my own podcast is there, and I've been in uh, interactive talk radio now for 27 years, so people might find that helpful. You know, we mentioned earlier the book, The Story of Reality, and uh, that just came out in January, but I, I, it's been re- very well received, and I want to encourage people to consider taking a look at that, because here in less than 200 pages, I try to give the big picture of Christianity, but in a thoughtful way, accessible way, and it's not condescending, it's not triumphalist, I, I, don't, I don't think any of your your um, listeners, it, no matter what their persuasion, are going to be uh, offended by the approach that I take in the book, but it might get them thinking. And so I just would like to commend that to them. And uh, to finally, I guess my final word, to come back to this main point, it, it, it comes down to the reasons. We can't dismiss people because we don't like their character, we think they're arrogant or bigoted, whatever, you know. I, I, I Some people are like that, but you can't dismiss um, ideas for those reasons. Mm. What we want to figure out is what's true about the world. And this is the most important thing that we can know because ideas have consequences. And if my ideas, your ideas, lots of other people's ideas are correct in Jesus, etc., well, you know, then these ideas have eternal consequences, not just temporal consequences. And that's why we should take them seriously and give our best thought to them. Thank you, Greg. This is really appreciated. I'm sure my listeners will appreciate that. And if you found this helpful, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and leave a review on iTunes uh, so we can continue doing what we're doing. And I do encourage you to listen and to uh, go to the Stand to Reason website, which I found to be immensely helpful on my own spiritual and logical uh, philosophical journey myself. Thank you for being with us. Go and make the world a better place. One life at a time.